any other interpretation you want to make of it, it all comes back to the same thing. These are occult practices that the God of the Bible seemed to have no problem with. The Magi were not kings. They were Zoroastrian astrologers. They were occultists. There's a lot of occult imagery in the Bible that people don't seem to realize or understand is there. And the thing is, they're not really trying to hide this stuff no. either because it's a much bigger deal to modern Christians than it was to the people who wrote the Bible. Most practices in Pentecostalism fall snugly under the cover of occultism or at a minimum have their roots in it. That's what occult thinking does, is it takes these things and sends them into this place where everything is just woo-rific and supernatural. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And, and it's, it's time, time to get unbound. Okay, class, settle down. It's time to put our thinking caps on and get ready to learn a thing or two about a subject that needs a little clarification. Let's start out with a little pop quiz and let's see who was listening last week. True or false? Satanism and the occult are synonymous terms. Give up? The answer is false. In fact, it would be difficult to be more false. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this week, we are going to dispel a few myths about one of the most liberally misused terms in evangelicalism and pop culture. And that is the term occult. And yes, there are Satanists who identify as occultists, but the overwhelming majority do not. And just like Satan, occult is more concept than concrete. But before we dig into our conversation this time around, I just want to let you know that our Patreon account is active at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network. If you can throw a fiver our way, we will put it to good use and help more people get and stay unbound. If you have the means, feel free to toss us a fiver or more at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network. And if you just don't have the money to spare right now, that's fine too. You can help us out with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, your reviews, and all the things that help podcasts grow. And just a quick thank you to everybody who's been coming out week after week, month after month, for nearly the last two years. Mm. We are 84 episodes in. Wow. You know, I knew that we had a lot to talk about <laughs> when we started this, but even I had a hard time seeing how we were going to fill 84 episodes. But there's a bottomless pit of <laughs> uh, things to talk about on this subject. So we're just going to keep on keeping on. For anyone who is discovering the show for the first time this week, welcome. And I think that you're really going to enjoy what we have for you. With all of that in mind, I just want to dive right into this subject because it's one that I think that the evangelicals are most guilty of corrupting, yeah. perverting, and just lying about in terms of what it actually is. So with that, let's just get right into our main topic. So we're talking about the real definitions and attributes of occultism and hopefully also setting the record straight about it in the minds of those of you who have only ever heard this term from evangelical sources or TV. Because honestly, I don't know which is worse. Mm. They 
both seem to handle it the same way. Yeah. And it's Badly. the devil this and the devil that and very, very little of anything else and very little of anything that actually aligns with what occultism is. Right. So you kind of have to do some digging here. And I'm just sitting here savoring the irony of what this word means. The term occult derives from a Latin root that literally translates to hidden or secret. The term refers to perceived supernatural phenomena that exist beyond the realms of physics or material reality. Most things that fall under the cover of supernatural at least have a toe in occultism, and most are far more immersed in it than that. Now, the first time I ever heard anyone refute the idea of Satanism and occultism being synonymous was when I got involved with Wicca. Of course, it didn't surprise me in the least to learn that Satan has literally nothing to do with occultism as an entity. According to curator and writer Pam Grossman, quote, the occult is about experiencing an immaterial realm, whether through a performed ritual, an altered state, a path of learning, or a work of art. We're going to hear a little bit more from her a little bit later, I think, because Shell is going to do a little bit of a talk about occult art and what that, what that, and what that has looked like over the centuries. Uh, But the term occult also refers to magical practices, secret rituals, and the silence or anonymity that people who practice them often adopt. Secret societies are often referred to as occultist in practice for these reasons. You might know some Freemasons, but good luck finding one who will describe in detail what goes on inside their lodge, and that's just one example. Of course, to the average evangelical, all things magic and supernatural are satanic in origin, hence the synonymous handling of the terms satanic and occultist. To this day, I have yet to find an evangelical who knows how to deal with the fact that in the beginning of the New Testament, the story of Christ's nativity literally and inescapably revolves around astrology. The Magi were not kings. They were Zoroastrian astrologers. They were occultists. They used magic, and they consulted the stars to find the Christ child. But no one wants to deal with that part of the story. No, no. I mean, if you think about it, the mystical death of Jesus and him arising from the dead is an occult practice. It's a mystery. The whys and wherefores are hidden from us. Yes. And, yeah, anything to do with mythology is pretty much a cult. Well, a lot of mythology. Uh, yeah is rooted in occultism and vice versa, to be perfectly honest. So, yeah. But anything that falls under the cover of supernatural is going to be somewhere on the occult spectrum. That's my term. That's no one else's term. (laughs) But anything like that is going to be at least part of this. It's going to have a toe in the pool, for sure. And sometimes more. Usually a lot more. But... Let's talk just for a couple of minutes about some of the foundational details about occultism. What makes this a thing? For starters, occult practices have no traceable origin. It doesn't go back to a certain person, people, group, culture, or anything. It's just one of those things that is as old as humanity itself. Most occult practices center on the practitioner's presumed ability to manipulate natural laws to the benefit of another, and this often takes the form of a practitioner-client transaction, like fortune tellers, palmists, even energy healers, people who do things like Reiki and Shambhala and reflexology, so it all falls under the same cover. 
ethical practitioners do not operate outside of widely held moral codes. They don't attempt to hurt anyone, kill anyone, or alter people's emotions or perceptions. As a Wiccan, I was always encouraged not to attempt spells that circumvent people's free will, and of course, not to do anything that brings or steers people into harm. So, no love potions, no death spells, that sort of thing. <laughs> These things were no-nos in Wicca because they kind of went contrary to the read. Because in various ways and to various degrees, they did harm. Yes. This isn't a hard and fast rule in occultism. We're talking about ethical practitioners. Even though it's all nothing but woo, there are people out there that believe in it and want to do things in a way that actually benefits people and doesn't hurt them. So it's one of a number of different paths. But if you want to break it down, you can be very right hand or left hand in your path. And that's true of a lot of occult practices. And finally, nearly all cultures have people who participate in some kind of occult practice. There are few, if any, societies that don't do this. And this has been true throughout history. Now, it doesn't validate anything aside from the fact that we're all more alike than we're different. But I think that it's interesting that new stuff keeps cropping up all the time. And even though I know that this is nothing but uh, nothing but humor, something mm-hmm. to get likes and follows on TikTok, there is an awesome little channel on TikTok that centers on the no bones pug. Mm-hmm. Now, I just literally learned about this this morning, and I'm like, wow, what a great thing to uh, to, to just put a, a period on this argument that this <laughs> stuff is perpetually happening and regenerating and new stuff is coming around all the time. Mm -hmm. So just in case anybody is unaware of what this is, number one, there's a link right there in the show notes. So you'll be able to check it out for yourself. But just to give you the Reader's Digest version here, it's a guy in his pug. And he goes over to the pug who is basically lounging in a pug bed. And if he picks up the pug and the pug just sort of flops over, that is what's considered a no-bones day. (laughs) He's not going to stand up. He's not going to respond. And I'm pretty sure what that means is that it's time to go back to bed and just crawl under the covers and not be productive. That's the point. But if the pug stands up on his own, that's a bones day, and it's time to go to work, and it's time to be productive. So it's a humorous thing. But it's the same principle as a lot of things in occultism. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of popped into somebody's head and he started making TikTok videos. And they're popular because anything like this, anything that has a kind of woo factor to it is going to be popular. Mm -hmm. Whether people literally believe in it or they're just really wildly entertained by it. Because I know that this month out in Salem... It's not a convention of devout Wiccans and pagans and all of that. There's a lot of tourists that are in town getting readings because they find it entertaining. Yeah. So it's not even a matter of, you know, people take all of it seriously. Most of them, most people who participate in this stuff understand that there's really no supernatural anything about it, that it's just entertainment. And I don't think that this guy on TikTok is trying to promote anything supernatural. It's just funny. And it just happens to fall under the cover of this. Just to put a point on the fact that people have always thought like this. Right. The most common aspects of occultism 
are divination, magic, witchcraft, and alchemy, but there are also others, and we'll have a look at a few more of them shortly. Now, I remember having to take a class. Every time I say I remember, it's like, okay, settle in, people, pop some corn. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, but I remember having to take a class on cults and the occult in college. And even then, I thought that it was an exercise in the Pentecostal pot, calling the repurposed but largely similar to Pentecostal kettle black. And of course, the occult end of it was nothing but a litany of criticisms about Satanism. We never actually got around to studying the occult, because right. if we had, I would have known this stuff then. Right. And I didn't, because it was all about Satanism and the dark aspects of all of this. And, uh, and incidentally, by Satanism, I mean the evangelical interpretation of it, not what we talked about last week. Right. But, you know, the line that they feed you from every pulpit, and in this case, from every classroom and every Bible college. And I'm, I'm sorry, that it's an interpretation that's a lot more Martin Scorsese than it ever will be Lucian Greaves. I assure you that the professor who taught this class had never even seen a copy of the Satanic Bible. Oh, yeah. But it came up. Mm. That's the funny part. I don't think that having a copy of the Satanic Bible on campus would have been a very, very good idea. But it did make its way into the conversation in this class. And when evangelicals hear the word Bible attributed to anything, they have a specific way that they interpret that in their heads. So the Satanic Bible to these people had to have the same meaning as the Christian Bible right. does to the evangelical, which really isn't true at all. These people are a lot smarter than the average evangelical, and they understand the difference between a set of guidelines, you know, maybe you might want to consider this versus, you know, do this or burn, that sort of thing. Yeah. And there's a huge, huge divide between the Judeo-Christian scriptures and a book written by Anton LaVey. There's a big difference there. And the sad part is that the latter will probably do you more good than the former. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the really sad part of it. So occultism, back on track a little bit here, is a merging of philosophies and beliefs that are based largely on Hellenistic magical traditions and Jewish mysticism. We'll get into both facets in a little while, but note, please, what is missing here. Uh, could it be, hmm, Satan? Satan? Well, yeah, not a single source I uncovered in my research even gives a little scratch and nod. Even images like Baphomet, pentagrams, hexagrams, and more are not classically attributed to Satan or Satanism. They just represent ideas, magical practices, and schools of thought. Even left-hand path ideologies aren't attributed to Satan, just the choices and practices of the practitioner. I think it's important to understand first and foremost that the occult wasn't even a widely used term until 1971 with the publication of Colin Wilson's book of the same title, The Occult. And even in instances where the term had been used prior, it was never, or at least not by those in the know, used as a descriptor of a group or an organization, but rather as one that identifies people with shared beliefs characterizations, mannerisms, and practices. Well, what's the difference? The difference is that one has physical walls and the other is an abstract concept. Think of the term the occult the same way you would terms like the general public 
or the great unwashed. This doesn't, <laughs> these terms don't necessarily refer to organized groups of people. Right. But you get kind of a specific picture in your head when you hear those terms. So that's the difference right there is the occult is not necessarily, you know, it, it's not a brick and mortar concept. It's a much more abstract concept. But when you understand what it is, it should put certain pictures in your mind. Uh, this is what it entails, and these are the types of people that practice these right. things. Another important thing to understand is that occultism is not a religion. To quote the Wikipedia entry, the occult in the broadest sense is a category of supernatural beliefs and practices which generally fall outside the scope of religion and science, encompassing such phenomena involving otherworldly agency as mysticism, spirituality, and magic. It can also refer to supernatural ideas like extrasensory perception and parapsychology. This term has been used as an intellectual wastebasket into which a wide array of beliefs and practices have been placed because they do not fit readily into the categories of religion or science. Now, while I find the term intellectual wastebasket to have a singularly disrespectful and overstated quality to it, from the standpoint of how a lot of this stuff trains people to think, it isn't that far off. I just think we could be a little more clinical and a little less Anton LaVey with our word choices. I would replace intellectual wastebasket with something like metaphysical slash pseudoscientific thought collective. Many Wiccans identify as occultists, and thankfully by the time I found myself identifying with them, I had stopped being afraid of the term. I also never thought of myself as being in the occult, but I knew that Wicca often involved occult practices, and it does. So that's a good segue into our next section, occult beliefs and practices. And we'll talk just a little bit about some of these. Scrying, mm -hmm. all different kinds of scrying. You have mirror scrying. Yep. You have fire scrying. What else is there? You did more th with there's this than water. I did. There's mm -hmm. water, looking into a pan of water. There's a type of vision that's auditory, where you hear things. Okay. And, you know, interpret those. I mean, there's a bunch of things. There's bones. There's mm -hmm. runes. All sorts of things like that. Right. But the things that fall under the category of scrying... Right. There's auditory scrying. Yeah. That one, I don't think I ever yeah. heard of or even... Well, well, I obviously didn't try. I haven't heard of it, but... Yeah. It, actually, that thing they used to tell you, like, to turn the television to the snow channel and listen, mm -hmm. that's auditory scrying. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it's a little bit different than what we used to do during ghost investigations. Right. I'm going to get into that. A little later, too, yes. because Spider was really into that for a while. Yeah. But no, I, I didn't realize that that was um, a branch of it. That's very interesting. But then you also have more stereotypical type things like crystal gazing. Hmm. And we saw a lot of crystal balls during oh, our yeah. time in Wicca. They're awesome. They're, they are kind of awesome. They don't show you anything, but they're, no, uh, they're, they're awesome, they're they're awesome in and of themselves. Reading tea leaves. I had this done on me a couple of times, and I never really thought much of it, no, to be perfectly it's... honest. It always seemed a little bit silly. But the one that I did take seriously was the tarot. Right. And I had been told numerous times that I was really good 
at giving tarot readings. And mostly, honestly, you know what it was? You know, I believed it too back in the day. Sure. But I was never trying to pull a fast one on someone. No. But the thing was that most of the time when I was doing readings for people, I knew them. And right. so I knew how to spin the cards based on what I knew about them. Not that I was doing it consciously to manipulate them, but my brain just did it because I knew them. And I was told many times that, you know, the cards do have specific meanings, but you should go with your intuition in terms right. of what the card is saying at that moment in time. So a lot of the things that I had to say during readings had more to do with what I knew about the person than the card that was on the table. Right. So there was that aspect of it in a, in a major way. But I was always amazed at the response that I got mm-hmm. from my readings. And I was convinced that I was really good at this and that I was really seeing things in these cards. And I would do readings for myself when I had questions, when I was in, in a position where I just needed a little bit of counsel and advice. There was a little bit of time in there before I actually got myself into therapy where I found a little bit of comfort doing readings for myself. Right. But I was also taught to believe that the cards are always right and that they aren't always going to give you a pleasant response. Right. What they have to say is not always going to be positive. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I kind of freaked myself out a couple of times (laughs) doing readings for myself and the cards that came up too. So there is, you know, there's a therapeutic aspect to it, but there's also a dangerous aspect to it. Right. And it becomes exponentially more dangerous when you are dealing with a practitioner who's in it for the money and is in it to scam people. So, yeah, the tarot... I think can they can they can be a fun diversion. Yeah. They can in a momentary way for people who believe in them. They can provide comfort, but they can also be a source of anxiety and stress too. Right. So that's why I think there are issues and problems with sitting there and telling people that you're interpreting things about them that are actually true because you're hearing from entities on, quote unquote, the other side right. about what's going on with them. There's a danger with that. I don't care how good people say you are at it. I'm glad that I don't do it anymore. And I'm glad that I didn't get any further into it than I actually did. Right. Understanding what I know about it now. Understanding the good but the bad that could be done with them. I'm glad I didn't go any further. Then there's the concept of palmistry. I actually did a lot of writing on this a few years ago. I had a copywriting client that was writing guides for things like numerology and palmistry. And that was where my head was back then. So why not make some money at it? But palmistry is an interesting thing too, not just from the supernatural angle, but what you learn just about the human hand, I think is really, really interesting. How there are so many similarities, but there can be so many differences too. So when you stop looking at it from the standpoint of magic, it becomes a more interesting thing to study just for its own right. Because you learn, you know, not not about human behavior. You learn more about a hand than anything else. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm geeky that way. I, <laughs> I'm happy to just learn about a hand. Yes. Um, runes. I have a set of runes. They're still around here somewhere. Yes, I have one too. I never quite understood how they worked. I yeah. I always found them to be just a little bit beyond what I was able to comfortably quote unquote interpret. So I didn't do much with them. But they're one of the oldest forms of fortune telling right. out there. And a lot of different cultures have their own iterations 
but uh, I forget what the ones were called that I was using. They all have their own names and their own descriptions. And again, there's a lot out there to choose from because, again, you know, even cultures that never touched each other, knew right. about each other, had practices and things that were similar. And runes are just one of those things that show up in a lot of places throughout right. history. Then there's astrology. I don't think I need to really go into much about what this is. I mean, I know what my sign is, but I honestly don't care about it beyond that. And even when I was in the thick of my time with Wicca, I didn't really care about astrology that much. I didn't really believe in it. Right. Because, you know, there was a part of me that just understood that, you know, maybe certain things happen because of interactions between things in the cosmos. And we know this because we orbit that big ball of fire. So we know that there are things out there that influence other things, but it's in a purely physical way. It has nothing to do with anything else beyond that. So, you know, you don't have to be concerned about who you marry based on your astrological sign. That's just silly. And I always thought that things like that were just a little bit silly, but I knew a lot of people who took astrology very, very seriously. Right. The same guy wanted me to write on astrology, and I'm like, okay, you know, for whatever reason, I wrote on palmistry, okay? Yeah. But, you know, I kind of drew the line at astrology. It's like, I, I feel like there were a lot, there are people out there who just take this stuff to an extreme. Yeah. And I didn't want to be part of that. I never heard of people doing anything too crazy and outlandish because they had their palm read. Right. But I know a lot of people who do things that are crazy and outlandish and sometimes downright dangerous or stupid based on what they read in their in their horoscope. Yeah. So, yeah. Astrology, for me, has never really been... It, it's, it's always basically been a no-fly zone for me. Numerology, I got into this a lot, too, for a little while there. Got to the point where I understood it pretty well, but again, never really honestly and truly believed in it. Even as I was writing, and I, the same guy, I wrote a lot of copy on numerology for him. And even as I'm writing, it's like, okay, this is all, you know, it's, it's fun to think of in this way. But even as I'm handing this stuff in, I'm thinking, I hope that when he actually publishes this book, or when he starts putting this stuff up on his website, that there is some kind of disclaimer that tells people that it's entertainment. Right. Because I can see the entertainment value in it. But I didn't want to think about people going out and making life decisions based on numerology. And yeah. so I tried, I actually tried really hard not to drive that concept when I was writing. I was very matter of fact about it. You know, this is what it is, this is how you do X, Y, and Z. But no promises or guarantees that it was going to do them any good whatsoever. So I did what I thought was responsible in that instance. Then there are two areas that I've always found very interesting. Instant writing and remote viewing are two things that I've always found really, really interesting. And I, and I know I'm way, way out from being a spiritual anything at this point. Right. So I know that there has to be some kind of explanation for these things. But I've also seen things in both of these areas that I flat out cannot fucking explain. So just in case anybody doesn't know what these things entail, instant writing is just that. It's either writing or drawing things, usually not looking at the paper, but you can. But you're usually in some kind of a trance-like state and just writing mm -hmm. stuff. And I know that people in Pentecostal circles 
have claimed to do this and have it be the Holy Spirit that's guiding their pen, mm. which, you know, you can al- almost always tell based on the vibe of what they write where that stuff actually comes from. I've seen some things come through in instant writing that I flat out can't explain. Mm. Um, there's no contextual reason why certain things showed up on that paper and then later on were able to be attributed to other things. But I also understand that there's a lot of latitude in terms of what actually comes out on that paper and how you interpret it, just like with the tarot. There's a lot of room to work. The remote viewing thing, you know, there are said to be people in our government that put a lot of stock in this and have employed Mm. people for this purpose in the past, where people claim that they can literally find people, objects, whatever, and describe, if they don't know precisely where the thing is, they can describe the room that it's in. They can describe the surroundings of the thing. And I find it very interesting because I know that some of these people have been right and that it has resulted in certain things happen, people being found, things being found, things that were believed to be observed, which there's no explanation for. But again, it depends on how good the person who is the practitioner is of this at communicating their craft. You know, I I think that it has a lot to do with the words that you use and how open for interpretation things are left. So that could very well be the reason why it works. You know, again, I don't believe in anything supernatural, but there are things in this world that I've seen that I can't explain. And that right there is pretty much the definition of occultism. Things that are hidden, things that are secret, things that are beyond the realm of explanation. But, you know, the problem is there's also very little evidence with the stuff in occult practices. So that's the first part of it. There's a lot with divination yes. in occult practice. Then there's the subject of magic with a CK ending. Um, occultism draws clear lines between magic with a C and magic with a CK. The spellings are designed to clarify the difference between stage magic, illusionism, sleight of hand, prestidigitation, and other forms of theatrics and trickery, or the, quote, legit applications of supernatural forces toward various ends. And I use that term very tongue-in-cheek. Right. Practitioners of magic with a CK are seen as channels through which supernatural power affects change in human events and conditions. Those who practice white magic seek to produce positive or favorable outcomes. Black magic practitioners intend harm and evil results. At least that's the Lutheran interpretation. This was the source that I was going by. A better secular interpretation, I think, is that black magic simply lends less deference to the positive effects, especially when aimed at people in situations where negative outcomes are considered to be warranted, desired, or at least acceptable. I think that piece actually did get the white magic part of it generally correct, but they were just a little bit too Christian in the way they looked at black magic. Then there's, of course, witchcraft, and I felt like man, there should be a lot more to say about this. But there's so much that falls under the cover of witchcraft that it's difficult to just talk about it in this context. It would need its own episode and probably more than one. And honestly, (laughs) there's so much detail and so many different ways to interpret what it is that it's kind of probably beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. But 
yeah, there are so many interpretations of what this is, but most of it, I'd say the vast majority of it, falls under the influence of occultism because you have your whole spell casting thing, setting intentions. Oh man, wasn't that a big one? Yeah. Everything we did, we did with intention, whether we were cooking something or working on something for a spell or setting up a ritual or whatever it was, intention was always the thing that was driven home with us in terms of how things were going to go. You know, what's your purpose and reason for doing this? What is it that you want to have happen in your circle tonight or as a result of this spell? Intentions were uh, were big. Yeah. And then there's the whole aspect of medicine making, which, you know, in pre-science days was yeah. considered a form of magic. Now we understand that these things are out there and that they have these applications. And science is more tasked now with with figuring out how certain things work together and they have definitely more safe and more practical ways of testing that. Then there's alchemy. You know, I I've heard this term so many times. I mean, right back to I think pre-high school. Oh yeah. We learned about alchemy and back then it was kind of a one sentence sort of thing. These were guys that thought they could turn anything into gold. Right. Well, that's sort of, kind of, but not exactly. The literal definition of alchemy is turning any base metal into silver or gold, but the definition of alchemy as a practice, or more to the point, a school of thought, has evolved quite a bit over the centuries to include a variety of spellcasting and transubstantive magic as well. Classic alchemy does have a distinct scientific approach, which I find interesting, but beyond the scope of this conversation, so I'm going to leave my comments on that right there. Alchemy also has a more woo-woo magic kind of aspect, as it is also closely related to astrology. Both astrology and alchemy seek to understand and exploit humanity's relationship with the cosmos. Not that we actually have one, aside from the fact that we're able to live here as a result of various cosmological conditions. That's as far as it actually goes. But these beliefs far predate what science tells us about the universe. So from an historical perspective, it's interesting to learn about and understand. And along those lines, the link to the Britannica article on alchemy is in the show notes. And it is a very interesting read. I read it from beginning to end. And I thought that it was really interesting, just a little bit beyond the scope. Because we could talk about all of these subjects for hours at a time. Oh, yeah. But I'm doing what I was taught to do in college and making a survey class out of this. That's uh -uh. basically it. Then there's the concept of hermeticism. Based on the hermetic writings or hermetica, these were, quote, works of revelation on occult, theological, and philosophical subjects ascribed to the Egyptian god Thoth, the Greek Hermes uh, Trismegistos, or Hermes the Thrice Greatest, who was believed to be the inventor of writing and the patron of all the arts dependent on writing. He wasn't, but that's okay. The collection, written in Greek and Latin, probably dates from the middle of the 1st to the end of the 3rd century AD. It was written in the form of Platonic dialogues and falls into two main classes. Popular Hermetism, which deals with astrology and other occult sciences, and learned hermetism, which is concerned with theology and philosophy. Both seem to have arisen in the complex Greco-Egyptian culture of the Ptolemaic and Roman periods. Now, hermeticism is a popular path in witchcraft, 
in Salem, Mass., Lori Cabot's coven is a hermetic order. And it is one of the largest and most widely recognized covens in the U.S. Hermeticism was also an influential element to much of Aleister Crowley's work. The Thoth Tarot among notable examples, a deck that I never dared to try to work with because I thought at the time that its intricacies were too deep for a novice witch like me to even try to interpret. And I know a lot of people who thought that way too felt that way, but thought the cards were at least cool enough to own a deck. Oh yeah, they're very pretty. They're very pretty, they're very detailed, there's a lot going on in those cards. Yes. And if I had the wherewithal to want to continue studying that type of thing, the tarot and those sorts of things, I would definitely want to dive into the Thoth Tarot a little bit more at this point. And there's nothing wrong with that on a purely intellectual level. So, you know, I I would love to see some more scholarly, intellectual articles on stuff like this that take the matter just a little bit beyond, well, this is all bunk, so can we get back (laughs) to a real conversation? You know, because that's that's most of what you're going to find. I would love to see someone do a little bit of secular research on this stuff Mm -hmm. and just come up with, you know, some good in-depth descriptions about some of this stuff you know the origins and what the intentions were behind certain things i think it would be very interesting to study and learn then there is the kabbalah which is also known as jewish mysticism it's been a while now Mm -hmm. but when the movie pi came out back in the 90s that was the first time that i heard about this Mm -hmm. and you know i thought that it was interesting but i also knew this is a movie So who knows how accurate it even is. But since then, it's like the blue car thing. We never hear about something, but then once you hear about it, you see it everywhere. So after that, I started seeing examples of this all over the place and never really developed a major understanding of it, but definitely an interest in it, especially when I was in Wicca. I thought that it was an interesting concept, too. Yes, even Judaism has its occult elements, although not all Jews practice Kabbalah. And don't think that people like Joseph Smith have cornered the market on contemporary sacred texts. The Jews started writing their own supplements to the Tanakh, that is basically the entire Old Testament, as early as the 3rd century CE, beginning with the Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Creation, which explained creation as a process involving the ten divine numbers of God the Creator and the 22 letters that comprise the Hebrew alphabet. Together, they make the, quote, 32 paths of secret wisdom. There's that word again, secret. The application of the 32 paths comes in the mastery of gematria, wherein every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value. The numerical values in the letters are then added together to get the numerical values of words. The practice of gematria, therefore, closely follows the structure of numerology, but, of course, has its own rules and applications. But they are very, very, very similar. It's just that one is spiritual and the other is more secular in the way that it approaches things, but does definitely purport to tap into things that are otherworldly, which is kind of the litmus test for whether or not it's a cult or not. Then there's the aspect of spiritism. Spiritism is the belief that it is possible to communicate two ways with the dead. This usually involves a medium, someone who is practiced, quote-unquote, big, big air quotes there, in communicating with the dead. Spiritists can perceptibly communicate directly with no help or props. 
think, you know, John Edward in Crossing Over, even though we know that he's a shyster. Right. Um, while many more employ elements of divination like tarot cards and Ouija boards to aid in tuning in a little bit better. And I saw that. Not Ouija boards. You know, I don't think I've ever actually seen a Ouija board used. Seven years in Wicca, never saw a Ouija board in yeah. use, okay? And I've never actually used one myself. Even back then, you know, I, I thought that, you know, you're, you're tampering in domains that you really don't want to be messing with. So I was always kind of put off by Ouija boards. And yeah, okay, I was a little afraid of them. So, yeah. uh, so I, I kind of steered clear. But I've definitely seen people in settings like that pick up a deck because it's like you know oh this person has a message for you and i'm just having a hard time picking up on it so i'm going to draw a couple of cards for clarification and then all of a sudden oh okay and again most of the people that uh, we dealt with were sincere they thought that they were helping us they thought that they were helping everybody that they did these readings for and whatnot so i saw a lot of the other side of it and and see every single time i go there the other side of it in salem because you've got the ones that are quote unquote legit, and then you've got a lot more who are just, you know, let's grab that $25 for a reading, that sort yeah. of thing. But yeah, I've seen a lot of that. Seances, channeling, pendulums, and much, much more are used to enhance the experience and authenticity of spiritism because everything basically lends what the practitioner is saying that extra added degree of credibility, even though. Science can tell you precisely why pendulums work. It all has to do with little tricks that your subconscious mind plays. Yeah. And I saw some stuff, you know, especially with pendulums. I saw stuff that I couldn't explain. But when you understand that the notion of intention isn't completely baseless, you are manipulating that pendulum. You're manipulating Mm -hmm. the things. When you're working with a Ouija board, you're manipulating the planchette. You don't know it, but you're doing it. You're not trying to do it, but you're doing it. So same basic thing with a lot of this. The props lend authenticity, but it's nothing supernatural that's driving the outcomes of these things. It's either something really hopelessly random like a tarot card Or it's just those subtle little movements that you don't even know that you're making that make the pendulum do what you want it to do. There's physical explanations for all of it, obviously, but there are still a lot of people out there that eat this stuff up and believe in it to varying degrees. One interesting aspect of my path in Wicca was that I had a tendency to gravitate toward a lot of dark gods and goddesses. Yeah. And Hecate, I'll admit it, my Hecate's wheel is still out there on my car. I haven't yep. taken it off yet. But it's just, it's like, to me, I look at it like my tattoos. I have a couple of pagany tattoos also. Yeah. And that's where I was at the time. When that stencil went on the car, that's where I was. So it's still there. And it's interesting how Hecate was the one that really took front and center. Right. With a lot of the things that I did. And it's also interesting that she is one of the deities in the Greek pantheon that is responsible for communication back and forth between worlds. So she is, and this, I I swear this is a real term, she's referred to as psychopomp. Yeah. And what that word means is that she is that medium between worlds where she right. can put people who are, who are alive together with people who are dead to have a conversation. Kind of like a uh, the underworld's answer to a telephone operator. 
you know, let me put you through to whoever. That's the, the role of psychopomp deities and psychopomp entities. Incidentally, we are right now in a time of year where it is supposedly easiest to communicate with the dead. October and the closer that you get to Samhain on October 31st, these days are said to be those where the, quote, veil between worlds is the thinnest. I'm not sure who decided this or how they deal with the differences between hemispheres because, you know, the weather isn't the same everywhere. It's not October, quote unquote, October everywhere. Right. Um, you go into the Southern Hemisphere and I believe that we would be right around Ostara. Right. Okay. This is where um, very early spring kind of like March, where we are right now in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. So that was one question that I never got a concrete answer to. It's like, why are these things happening in this part of the world, but not in other parts of the world? And do they happen in other parts of the world and they have different um, interpretations? No. When you flip the hemispheres, from what I was told, you also flip the Sabbaths. So at the same time that we're experiencing Samhain, they're experiencing Ostara, that sort of thing. And I mean, honestly, that's the, the most level-headed interpretation that right. I could come up with. But it was always something that I questioned because I knew that. And, and also, you know, there, there were other, there were a lot of things. But again, beyond the scope of this conversation, maybe we can get into some of the more pagany beliefs and the red flags that shot up in my head at another time. I think that might actually be fun. Mm. But for right now... We're still talking about occultism. Believe it or not, we're still talking about occultism. So I want to hand things over to Shell to talk a little bit about occult art. Because this is an interesting branch of occultism that I don't think a lot of people really understand or are even cognizant of because they're so busy thinking about it being a religion that they don't think about this aspect of it. So... Talk to us a little bit about occult art. I look at occult art in one of two ways. There are images made for ancient grimoires, tarot cards, and altar pieces, stuff like that. Like the woodcuts, when the printing presses first came out, there were the woodcuts of like, you know, the astrological signs, like pictures of the devil, um... And then there's other things like sacred geometry mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I consider all of that part of art. Well, yeah, because there's a lot of art that's based off of those things. Yes, there's a ton. I would consider tarot cards to be art. Of course. Oh, yes, yeah. uh, especially the Rider Waite has all sorts of esoteric symbolism Oh, and yeah. astrological Waite. symbols. Yeah, Rider Waite Tarot, man. That's, uh, that is a really, really amazing deck. And it's the one that most people think about right. when they think about the tarot. It's that popular. And, you know, the imagery isn't that detailed, but there's a lot of detail in the imagery. Right. You know, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, another sort of occult art is the sort where the meaning of the piece is not immediately obvious, such as art of the symbolist movement, the surrealist movement. Those things are the sort of art that you, the viewer, has to find the meaning for. That's the best art, though. Right. I think so, too. Oh, yeah. Visualist art also hints at a larger world of mysticism outside of reality. 
but the immediate meaning of the art piece takes thought and imagination. And there are as many interpretations as right. there are people to interpret it. Yeah. Kind of like the tarot. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, you'll, you'll find these pictures that are just strange. Like I saw one where there was a, a leopard cuddling mm-hmm. with another human, but the leopard had the face of a human female. Yeah. And that was just odd. Yeah. But that's what you would call occult art. You're not sure what this means. Right. But it evokes some sort of emotion. Yeah. Or just visual. Yeah, well, visualization. All, or, all art is supposed to elicit some kind of right. emotional or mental response, you know, yeah. in, or, or interpretation. Yeah. All art is supposed to do that. But there are attributes to occult art yeah. that kind of take it to a whole other level. Right. Because of the mysterious nature. Mm -hmm. of a lot of it, a lot of the uh, visuals. There were a few real articles on occult art as a genre. However, I did find several articles on art exhibits with this theme. This next quote is from a 2016 Huffington Post article. The word occult simply means hidden. Curator and writer Pam Grossman explained to the Huffington Post. Grossman is the curator of The Language of the Birds, an exhibition now on view at New York University's Art Gallery. The exhibition's title alludes to the mystical belief in a perfect divine language devised entirely of symbols through which the initiated can communicate to reveal secrets and ignite metamorphosis. Their own? Their own or other people's. You don't know. What am I going to metamorphose into? It's interesting... Uh-huh. But it's one of those things where, you know, I would tread lightly. <laughs> yes, but I think it's more like what a... What am I going to become? It's more like a transformation, like a positive thing, instead of, like, you slowly become a cockroach or something. Well, yeah, that's what I'm That's what I'm kind of hoping doesn't happen. <laughs> I don't want to figure this out and then turn into a chicken, you know? That's... <laughs> that's an interesting concept. I'm just not sure how I feel about it. I know, right? <laughs> We use occult to reference revealing things that were hitherto unrevealed, Grossman added. More specifically, in the context of the show, it really is about magic, using ideas of symbolism and ritual and intention to create actual change in the material world. Occult art often uses universal tropes, common symbols, and cross-cultural ideas to get the hidden messages across. The symbols of Kabbalah, Hermeticism, tarot, and alchemy are often used as inspiration for the artist, even if the art has nothing to do with reality. Occult art has been with us as long as humans have imagined their myths and mysteries. Throughout art history, depictions of myth and magic has been popular. And of course, within those pieces, the intention of the artist could be very at odds with the subject of their art. In an article about a new book about occult images, Historian Christopher Dell explains, Many books on magic are very tough to get into and are structured around traditions. I wanted my book to be very international. Every single culture in the world has its own monsters, mythologies, and magical traditions, and there are lots of similarities between them. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah. A lot of similarities. For example, while the star and pentagram can be linked to Israel's King Solomon, it also has roots in Germany as a ward against evil. Japanese symbolism has the same imagery, but totally different meaning, he says. 
ultimately, I try to tell the complete story. And that's awesome. I love that concept where you can take a specific symbol and just look at it from the perspective of every culture that has used it yeah, and what it represents to them because I'm listening to this and all I can think of is learning how to make summoning and banishing pentagrams. Yeah, Remember that's that? really hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, it was one of the things that we learned as part of our training in Wicca. Right. So I don't, I don't know if we've ever mentioned this during the show before, even when we did our little mini-sode on Wicca, but we actually got some formal training yeah and we learned from a couple of different people how to do various things and we were kind of on our way to becoming priest and priestess and a lot of that stuff you know the the spell casting and all of the things that go along with that were part of it so when you read that that was the very first thing i thought of was banishing and uh, and summoning pentagrams and all of that but then yeah the pentagram has different meanings in different cultures, yeah. but it shows up everywhere. Right. That is really, really amazing that there's somebody out there that is actually looking into this stuff. Yeah. And I would love to see like a comprehensive volume mm. on even if it was just 10 of these symbols. Yeah. I would love to see something comprehensive about where it has shown up throughout mm. history. And here's another quote from the same article. Dell devotes most of his book to ancient and medieval imagery, but the foundation is essential for understanding his later chapters on contemporary magic and neo-pagan religions, such as Wicca, Thelema, and the Church of Satan. He places a focused lens on figures like Aleister Crowley and Gerald Gardner, whose interpretations of earlier writings and art formed the basis of the new religions they went on to found. Also, I have this book, and it is awesome. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, we all know that visual arts can affect the viewer's emotions. Some pieces of art evoke certain feelings or spark the imagination. Oh, we're going to talk about birth pangs. Yeah. Oh, man. The first time you saw that? I was, like, seriously freaked out. Well, yeah, because we were evangelical kids at the time. Yeah, and we were in this store. I don't know precisely where it was, but they had posters, and I think they were, like, postcards it was at the downingtown flea market yeah it was first it was a postcard and it just sort of kept it um, kept showing up hearing for a while about the time that he did the painting Mm -hmm. so it was brand new right and it was just a really really odd interpretation of these things are the beginnings of birth pangs in revelations right yeah and it was just it freaked me out so badly. You were freaked out by the cross and what he did with the cross. Yeah. Now, it, I didn't see anything all that scandalous about it. It just no. had what, what seemed to be like ribbons or something. Yeah. Over I, it. No, it just freaked me out because it was weird. And honestly, certain things, certain visual things freak me out because it's weird. I think it freaked you out more because you saw it more than once. Yeah. I and saw it more than once. convinced that it was the devil antagonizing you. Yes. I mean, that's that's an easy thing to think when your whole life you've been told that when you're in the right place, Satan's going to tempt you and all that great stuff. Well, yeah. And I mean, just being 
in that kind of an evangelical cloister, that's yeah. going to fuck up your thinking just a little bit. Just even even for me, and I've said many times before that you know I never gave my mind over to it, but oh, I had my moments. <laughs> uh, I had things that that I had convinced myself were real and that were happening that just flat out weren't. And I think for you with this particular painting, it was the fact that it showed up more than once. Yeah, and that you kept being confronted by it. But I will find a link to that too, just so that people know what yeah. we're talking about. You mention it, but I don't see a link in your notes. I will make sure that people yeah. get to see this. It's, it's a funky painting. It is very funky. The artist's name is Vincent Monaco. And once I actually Googled the artist, there was a whole mess of his other stuff. And it's all really weird. Well, yeah, I would assume that it would be on the same lines. But now I'm fascinated. I'm like, I want to know why you did it this way. Well, yeah, because I mean, when you think about it with a clear head and you don't have all of this mystical gobbledygook clouding your interpretation of it or clouding your opinion of it, then, of course, it becomes interesting. You know, you, yeah. you realize you, you, you step up to the hot stove, you're told not to touch the hot stove, and then you find <laughs> out that it's not even hot to begin with, right? then that makes it even more interesting to explore. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. But I've looked for the painting several times. I always found it because I know what it's called now. I also know the artist. And uh, he he's still doing work. Yeah. He's still doing a lot of work. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure it's every bit as funky. Yeah. It's as very symbolic. Yeah. It's very symbolist um, and There's also a lot going on. surrealist. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah. A lot going on in his work. Yes, definitely. So that's just a little bit about occult art and what's out there. And, you know, there's, we again, there's a whole episode on this, but probably not for this particular show. No. There's a lot to talk about, but I think that it'll go off the rails very, very quickly if we yes. say more about it. So, you know, a quick Google search on that term, occult art, and then just hit images. Oh, yeah. You're going to see what we're talking about. There's tons. There's a lot of examples out there that kind of put a period on the things that Shell was just talking about. But I want to segue now into occultism and technology. Now, this is a branch of occultism that I really hadn't considered until, you know, actually maybe halfway or more into Wicca, I started understanding that some of this had to do with it. But even, you know, it, it took researching this show to really understand how immersed in it I was. Right. Because I, you know, my brain didn't really think about it in those terms back then. But like I teased a little bit earlier, um, Spider was very much into ghost hunting yeah. for a while. I did more than a few investigations. I did several overnight investigations. I've slept by myself in a room in a quote-unquote haunted house more than once. One of the more popular ones on the East Coast is the Haunted Victorian in Gardner, yeah. where I have been a total of four times. <laughs> so, And I, I would go on record saying that I experienced things there that I couldn't explain. That doesn't mean they weren't completely put on. Right. But there were things that happened there that, you know, I could not explain. 
But I want to talk about the various things that comprise occult technology. And we're going to start off with the subject of spirit photography. Now, you did a little bit of research on this. I'm going to let yeah. you talk first. And then I'm going to talk about you know my experience with this. Okay. As technology gets more complicated, the occult finds its way into even the most advanced of tech. For instance, ghost photography was very popular in the 19th century and many people believed in it. The ideas in spiritism and theosophy were studied seriously by many of the same people who studied the real hard sciences. While many 19th century scientists were skeptical of the bangs, levitating tables, and spirit manifestations of Victorian seances, the prevailing view was that of people like chemist and entrepreneur William Crookes, electrical engineer Cromwell Varley, and Lodge himself, who believed that the task of science was to weed out the fraudsters so that we might better understand genuine psychic influences. Oliver, Oliver Lodge was a, uh, a physicist in the um, late 1800s. Yeah, thanks for that little bit of context. This is, this is just a, a quote, uh, a quote yeah. from one of the articles that you found. So, yeah. It has been common to regard Lodge and Crookes as anomalies. They were certainly scientific eminences. Both had knighthoods and strings of awards for their work, but were nonetheless credulous individuals. An interest in psychical phenomena was shared by many prominent physicists of the late Victorian and Edwardian eras. While it seems kind of strange that it would be that way, a lot of these men who were scientists were also devout Christians, and they were discovering all of these new things, and they're like, where does my faith fit into this? And, you know, they were a little nervous and worried about that. Yeah. Because they were discovering all of these things that could not be seen, like radio waves and electromagnetic waves, cathode rays, and uh, radioactivity. Yeah. All of these things that can't be seen but have effects in our world. Right. That could be something that could really shake your faith. Well, yeah, because now all of a sudden it's not mysterious. Right. Now you understand that there is an explanation for it. There's an explanation for everything. Right. It's just that we haven't found them all yet. Right. And one other factor was like the telecommunications technologies that were coming in, like mm -hmm. the telegraph and eventually the phone. But it's possible to transmit voices invisibly and wirelessly over great distances. Yeah. That's pretty wild, too. Mm -hmm. So if you could send things between London and New York, why not between the living and the dead? Yeah, you see, there's, 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 where, that. there's, there's... where you start going <laughs> off the rails with it just a little bit. But that's what occult thinking does, is it takes these things and sends them into this place where everything is just woo-rific and supernatural. Right. So, yeah. In terms of my own experience with this, I have to admit that even though I know and understand that when things show up in pictures like orbs, that yeah. there is a definite physical explanation for it. Usually it's dust motes that are close to the lens when the picture is taken. But I see them more in certain contexts 
than I do in others. Maybe it's just because my brain got trained to look for them more in certain contexts than others. But, you know, when I look at, you know, some of the the pictures that people post on social media, just for example, Mm -hmm. I don't see anywhere near as many of them as I did with pictures that were taken in various rituals. And, you know, since there are people out there that are already asking the question, I'm going to say, yes, absolutely. I think it has to do with the fact that we did so much of this stuff outside. So there were other things in the environment, in the air, things that get close enough to the camera to be picked up when you take a picture. But there were other things, too. Do you remember that picture that I took and when we were doing the circle for Sow in that year? And that thing that I took a picture of that kind of looked like a horse yeah. riding out of the fire? Yeah, you that see, was pretty I was, um, I was kind of into the notion of Rhiannon at that point. And right. you know, she was a goddess that was known to ride on a white horse. So I had convinced myself that Rhiannon showed up in the circle because yeah. that happened. Yeah. It's trickery with the light. It's trickery with um, the way that the flames were at that moment in time. But again, really interesting stuff that's difficult to put a finger on and say this is what the cause was. And since I mentioned Lori Cabot a little bit ago, there was, and you can look this up, just Google Lori Cabot National Geographic, and you will see that there's a picture that showed up in National Geographic magazine that was a picture of her and her coven. And it seems like there's some kind of energy field that goes around all of them and touches a lot of them. And, you know, you have to understand that there is a definite physical explanation for this. Photography is not perfect. No. But it's just another one of those things that people will look at and say, well, this proves that it's real. Right. Now, orbs don't prove that it's real. Things that show up in pictures that you don't expect don't prove that it's real. And anomalies that could have been something as as simple as the way that that print was held when it was being developed. That's been my thought about that for a while. Right. Is the way that they agitated the picture when they were developing it. And this is what happened because it had more exposure to those chemicals than other parts of the picture did. That, to me, is a much more practical way of looking at it. But, you know... Back in the day, the way that I thought about this, you know, it's like it had to have a supernatural quality to it. Well, no, it really doesn't have to. But it's a lot easier to look at it and say it does than it does to actually go looking for the real causes. And honestly, orbs, they're dust mites. People get over it. They're dust mites. They're, <laughs> yeah. They may be, if you're outside, little bugs or something that get a little bit too close. And that's how they show up in the picture. There's nothing more to it than that. But the fact that these anomalies happen and still happen, a lot less with digital photography, but they do still happen. A lot of people will use that and say, well, this validates it, but it really doesn't. So now that we've talked a little bit about spirit photography, I will say this. I tried taking pictures at a number of these ghost investigations that I did and never got anything out of the ordinary. Even very rarely did I get orbs or anything like that. But once in a while, those did show up and there was a lot of CC that went over that. See, see, there is something in that room. Yeah, yeah dust. It's an old house. <laughs> um, yeah. But there were other things that I found really interesting. And I, again, it took researching the show to realize how much of this I'd already done. But there is electronic voice phenomena, or EVP. They've done movies on this. Yeah. 
And yeah, I've heard things during ghost investigations that mm -hmm. I can't completely interpret or understand, but I have to also remind myself that every second of every day, we are being bombarded with waves, Wi-Fi signal waves, FM waves. Even there are still some TV stations out there that broadcast over the air. We have this stuff running through us all the time. And it runs through our environment all the time. So things like EVP, you know, there were a few times when I can remember we had the radio set there just on static and people in the room asking the quote unquote ghosts questions. And once in a while, there would be some kind of an anomaly and something would change with the static or you would hear something or you might hear what you think is a word and a bunch of people in the room will agree that they heard that word. So... Right. That's, I mean, there's, again, physical explanation for it. You've got all of these waves running through you all at once and running through all of the equipment that you were using to try and pick this stuff up. Eventually, it's going to pick up something. Yeah. You know, that's just the way it is. I remember the one group that we did a couple of investigations with and them setting up the laser lights. You remember that? How they would set up the, yeah. the laser grid inside a room because if a ghost were to move through that then we would probably be able to see them through the laser grid and that sort of thing i don't I think never i was saw there anything. for that but yeah yeah i've seen it used a few times i never saw anything right. as a result of that ghost boxes and recorders again you know we're talking about things that can be picked up from any number of sources and none of them supernatural Thermal cameras and thermometers, you know, you take pictures that are supposed to identify hot and cold zones in a room right. or images of things that are in the room. But the problem with that is that even if you're sitting in a room and, and the temperature seems steady, there are always, there are always fluctuations. Right. So this equipment is going to pick up on even the slightest fluctuation in temperature, and a lot of this business of, you know, you're walking into a room that's supposedly haunted and, oh, my God, it's so much colder in here. A lot of that is just your body responding to the elation and the excitement and the nervousness of what's going on. It's not really any colder in there, but because you've been conditioned to expect it to be and you've been conditioned to expect things to happen during this investigation, all of a sudden it feels colder and it really isn't. Motion sensors, I think a lot of that with ghost hunting came down to like lasers and that sort of thing. But there were also other things I can remember. I forget what the device was that they used, but I can remember them placing this box down on the floor where we all sat in a circle and we would ask the ghosts questions and they were right. always yes or no questions. And everyone would ooh and ah when that little green light would go off. Yeah. But again... There's all kinds of electrostatic everything yeah. in the air and moving through that room, especially with all of those people and all of those bodies and all of those, um, with all due respect, rubber shoes rubbing against the same carpet that this thing is on. There are so many scientific reasons for why we would get those green lights. But in the context of that, it was just ooh-ah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, there are things within our culture that perpetuate this stuff. Right. Movies like Poltergeist and Ghostbusters and more recently movies like Paranormal Activity and, and Unfriended, which I found entertaining, amusing but entertaining, 
have themes that center on occult in technology. There are actually a couple of movies out there now that center on malcontent spirits attacking people using the internet and social media and that sort of thing. It all goes back to the same root and it all just puts more of a point on the notion that these are things that people just think about. Right. And we think about them along these lines and it doesn't matter who we are, where we're from or what year we were born. We still think about these right. things because anything that we don't understand, we still have this tendency to just create explanations for in our head. It's not entirely healthy, especially when we understand that we live in a physical world and that there are explanations for everything. Mm -hmm. But this is the way that people have thought since time, yeah. since, since the very beginning, since there were people right. who thought like this. And um, I know that even on the internet, it's a place that is rife with occult memes. Yep. And I know that when I was on uh, Tumblr a lot, I was following a lot of witch blogs. And sometimes they would make a graphic and say, reblog this to cast the spell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, like it to charge it up, reblog it to cast the spell. Yeah. And there's also one that goes around Facebook every so often. It's like a cat on its back with the one hand raised for the good luck. And it has, oh, yeah, it has yeah. money okay. all over its belly. Mm -hmm. and. They're like, reblog Money Cat and you will find fortune. And oh, yeah. I always reblog it just because I like the picture. There's so funny. much of it. There's so much. But Christianity touches it too. How oh, about the course. whole one like equals one, one, prayer. one prayer thing? I'm yeah. like, oh gosh. Yeah, that was silly. Yeah. You and know. fortunately, you don't see that one quite huh. so often anymore. I don't see it at all anymore. But there are so many iterations of the same yeah. thing. And they cross all kinds of religious and spiritual lines. So, yeah, it's yeah. the exact same thing. And, again, just puts another point on the fact that this is how people think and that there are people out there that believe it and there are people out there that just find it entertaining. And people will like and share it for both reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So we are at the point now where we're starting to, uh, to wind things down a little bit, but as I was thinking about this, one thing that really stuck in my head was the fact that there's a lot of occult imagery in the Bible that people don't seem to realize or understand is there. And because it's in the Bible, it translates into certain forms of worship, particularly Pentecostalism, because whether they ever care to admit it or not, and they never will, most practices in Pentecostalism fall snugly under the cover of occultism or, at a minimum, have their roots in it. And no, they will never admit it. But think about it. Glossolalia or speaking oh, in tongues, yeah. that's a form of channeling. Energy healing, where you know you stretch out your hands to the people that are at the altar or you lay hands on people for, uh, for healing and whatnot. Raising energy. What do you think the point of a worship service is? Right. You're raising energy just like you would in a pagan circle. Sending energy, that's the outstretched hands part of it. It's like you're out there in the middle of the congregation and there's someone up on the platform who is asking for healing for whatever and you stretch out your hands to them. It's that kind of sending energy thing that they taught us that we could do as Reiki practitioners too. Yeah. Then there's words of knowledge. Well, that's clairvoyance 101. Right. And clairvoyance is a very occult concept prophecy also a very occult concept 
Then there are the people that like to open up their Bibles to random pages. What does God have to say to me today? Right. Well, when we were in Wicca, didn't we do our card of the day where we would just shuffle the deck, yep. grab a card, and that was supposed to give us information about our day and how mm -hmm. to plan things and structure things? Same exact thing. And also, let's not forget that five out of the seven gifts of the Spirit have supernatural elements to them. Mm. Okay. Pentecostalism shares many of its attributes with theosophy, a cross between Western occultism and Eastern mysticism. We could do a whole episode on, on that. We actually have delved into this a little bit in the past with the similarities between Pentecostalism and Eastern mysticism, but there's a lot more here right. that we could get into also because, oh, the similarities. There are so many of them. And since I already brought it up, occult practices are also found all throughout the Bible. You know, the all authoritative word of God, the book that in its entirety is God breathed and useful in teaching, rebuking, <laughs> correcting and training in righteousness, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Well, here are just a few examples of occult practices in the Bible. You've got the Urim and Thummim. Used to get metaphysical answers to questions. This thing was basically the original magic eight ball. Okay, these things were the Bronze Age equivalent of that. You have the Magi who, like I mentioned earlier, were in fact Zoroastrian astrologers. And the thing is, they're not really trying to hide this stuff no. either because it's a much bigger deal to modern Christians than it was to the people who wrote the Bible. There's the miracle working aspect of things that happen in both the Old and New Testament. These all fall under the cover of psychokinesis. And in terms of what Jesus did in the New Testament, energy healing is a huge part of that too. Yeah. Then I, as I was coming up with these bullet points, I thought of the witch of Endor, who was in the book of 1 Samuel, a medium who channels the spirit of the prophet Samuel in order to receive advice about how to defeat the Philistines. You can read it. 1 Samuel 28 is where that happens. So we've got people who are on the side of Yahweh who are consulting with mediums. Yeah. And it's just hunky-dory as far as the Bible is concerned. Then you've got the whole business with Moses and Pharaoh. He throws down the staff. It turns into a snake. Pharaoh says, oh, hold my beer or hold my mead or whatever the fuck it was he was drinking at that point. It was beer. And yeah, that's true. And all of his henchmen throw down their staffs. And Moses walks away with an amply fed snake, amply fed staff, because the, his snake eats all the other snakes. So you've got all kinds of magic happening in the Bible. The bronze serpent that heals snake bites in Numbers 21. Then there's Elisha removing toxins from a stew by adding flour to it in 2 Kings 4. So these are all forms of magic and spell casting and any other interpretation you want to make of it, it all comes back to the same thing. These are occult practices that the God of the Bible seemed to have no problem with. Yeah. And yet the modern church likes to vilify all things occult by trying to hide it under the cover of Satanism, demonology, and, and a whole bunch of other things that it simply does not have anything to do with and never really touches in terms of the various practices that are part of it. I also linked in the show notes to a comprehensive list of terms 
that were associated with occultism. And while I'm not about to list them all off here tonight, it really was an eye-opener to me just how closely related my beliefs as a neo-pagan were to occultism. Even now, I find myself surprised at some of the things that I saw on that list. Had I been given accurate or factual information about this growing up, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as surprising, I don't think. Or, let's be honest here, scary. Because there were things when I first started out as a fledgling Wiccan that kind of scared me. It's like, what exactly uh, have I gotten myself into here? Yeah. And those were moments that occurred early on. And all of them were based on what I learned as an evangelical. So I basically was going about the process of unlearning a lot of the things that I had learned. But when you're first confronted with that stuff and you've been taught to think this way for so long, your first thought is, oh, my God, I am in this deep and I am over my head. Well, no, because it's not the evil thing that you've been taught that it is. Just the same way that almost every interpretation of who Satan is comes back to one of the pagan gods usually pan and there are a couple others kernunos and a couple of others but none of them have the attributes that the christian church places on satan so it's the same basic concept and all of these things together are why i think it's so important to adopt the right attitudes and perspectives especially about literally everything in life evangelical thought on this subject has very effectively permeated the culture, even to the point where secular sources like film and television media have been perpetuating the non-existent relationship between occultism and Satanism for decades. A quick Google search for occult movies yields links to movies like The Devil's Advocate, House of the Devil, The Omen, and Angel Heart. And that right there is just the first page. Those are the things that come up first. All of these movies deal directly with Satan and the media interpretation of Satanism. I mean, what the hell does the Amityville horror have to do with alchemy, Kabbalah, or Hermeticism? It doesn't even handle the concept of mediumship that well. So, you know, where does it fit in? Well, it fits in with the popular interpretations that have been thrust upon it by the modern Christian church and what the media chooses to perpetuate about it. So in my mind, I'm not 100% certain which is worse, what you learn from the pulpit or how it's reinforced in the movies and on TV and in other media. So with so many people out there just believing whatever they're told, maybe, just maybe, it's time for those of us who have a real interest in the truth to set the record straight. Occult is not a word that should scare anyone. It shouldn't evoke images of the devil. It may not be the kind of thing anyone wants to become immersed in as a personal philosophy, but it is the kind of thing that far too few people ever take the time to understand. The truth is out there and readily searchable, and the widespread acceptance of stereotypes about the occult is proof positive that people would largely rather believe than be informed. This, in a nutshell, is why religion in all of its forms has managed to thrive for as long as it has. But here's the thing. Now you know the truth. What do you think about it? If you're an ex or current evangelical, what's going through your mind right now? When I discovered the truth about this, I was far enough detached from it that it elicited more of an oh brother response from me than anything else. If you are responding to this with things like anger, surprise, or denial, it shows that you're considering the truth 
and finding it uncomfortable. But you see, that's the thing about the truth. It's usually uncomfortable. And this is actually a very good thing. Being held in your comfort zone is also what has kept you in that pew. The world is bigger than your pastor wants you to believe. Satan is not lurking around the corner waiting to ensnare you and take your soul. And not everything that they don't understand has Satan as its explanation. It's just more convenient for them to scare you into seeking shelter within the walls of your church than it ever would be to even suggest that you take a closer look at how big the world really is and how things actually function in it. Stop waiting for your pastor to tell you the truth about anything. Whether intentionally or just as a result of being fed the same lies, he or she is simply not going to deal in truth, ever. It's your job to seek it out, test what you've been told against available data, and decide whether you're going to go on simply believing and trusting or if you're going to do the uncomfortable work of seeking the truth wherever it leads. Sometimes that search leads us into uncomfortable places, but in cases like this, when we're presented with the truth, consider it, test it, and draw conclusions based on it, it also leads us to places that free our minds from fears and misconceptions that our spiritual leaders spend their entire lives trying to instill in us. If you let them, you'll never know what the truth is. If you don't, the truth will truly set you free. And it's at that point where you learn what it really means to live and think in a way that gets you and keeps you unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.